We are returning to the book of Genesis. We're starting today on Isaac, and then we're going to follow this with about four weeks on Jacob. Initially, we're going to do two weeks on Isaac today, but I've taken, we've pushed it together, and I'll explain in a why, in a moment, why we're doing that. And then after Jacob, four weeks on Jacob, at this stage we're expecting four weeks, then we'll do whatever it is, six weeks, five, six, seven weeks on Joseph. Uh, that should take us up to the second coming, and then... <laughs> uh, and then we'll be out of the book of Genesis, and uh, we'll make a decision then. The uh, kids' church program, uh, likewise, they're in Genesis. They're doing it at a much faster rate, and they'll end up in the book of Exodus. And we just did Exodus last year, so we thought, let's slow Genesis down and look at these characters a little bit and learn from them what God says to us through them. And then we'll decide what we are going to do after that. So please be in prayer for us about that. It is good to be back. It's a week of uh, catch-up this week as well as um, a week of being stretched. The pastoral team met on um, Thursday night and uh, was processing stuff, both following up from the uh, pastoral, t- uh, pastoral team, from the members meeting and also uh, processing some issues which are before the pastoral team. Please continue to pray for them. I'm going to ask you to pray with me and then we're going to jump in. I appreciate that David said that I am going to bring God's word shortly. (laughs) So I'll try to bring it shortly. Uh, We'll see if I can honour that. I have 21 pages of notes in front of me. And usually when I get that much information, I tend to talk really, really fast. So I'll try not to do that and I'll try to jump over some stuff. But surprisingly in this material, there's lots to learn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are wonderful. Thank you for communicating to us that you haven't cast us aside, that in fact you are with us, as we'll be reminded this morning. Thank you for your word. And some parts of it, Lord, are difficult and some are easy. Could you help us in reading it to hear the truth of what you are wanting us to learn? May we do that this morning, and may you use our evening series to do the same, to be better equipped to be students of your word, that we might be true to you, and that we might grow in Jesus. We pray in his name. Everybody said? Isaac is the patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is the one who lived the longest. He died when he was 180 years of age. So he lives the longest, but there's the least recorded of him. There's not a lot of information that Genesis gives us. Abraham gets 12 chapters, Jacob gets 12 chapters, Joseph gets 12 chapters, Isaac gets one. He's mentioned before and after that one chapter, which we are going to look at this morning as we look at his life, obviously. But the references to Jacob are scattered all the way over the landscape of Genesis, and you have to go looking for them. He's mentioned about 16 times, 12 times roughly, 12 paragraphs or glimpses of information. But like I said, there's only one chapter, and that's chapter 26, which focuses on him. He's more in a support role. You know, he's the the son of a famous father, or he's the father of a famous son. But there's only one chapter which is about him. Every other chapter is either about him and them, or him and his children, or him and his wife, or something like that. It's never just him, except chapter 26. Uh, So he's in this support role, not a lead role. 
And most of the references to Isaac in the scriptures are in fact in that title of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It's about a third, roughly a quarter or a third of the references. Just name him. I think one verse in the New Testament, or he gets one verse in the New Testament, Hebrews 11, to talk about him. So let's see how we go. Let's talk about the birth of Isaac. Now, some of this is going to be pretty quick. Um, all the way through Genesis 17, 18, 21, <clears throat> the promises given to Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a son. His birth is significant. And there's some things that we can certainly learn, and I want to remind you of very quickly here this morning, that God's not in a hurry to fulfill his plan. He's working to his schedule, which he has set. He appears to us sometimes to work very slowly, but he does work deliberately. And he does work patiently and he is committed to achieving his plan. So whatever is going on in our lives, God is still working out his sovereign plan of salvation for this world. He's still bringing Jesus back. He's still going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And everything is working towards that. Sometimes we get glimpses of that and we get caught up in it and that's wonderful. And other times we are just left, like Isaac, to live rather ordinary, normal, quiet lives as God goes about achieving his purpose. God is almighty. We learn through the birth of Isaac because his dad is 100, his mum is 90, he's a, a child of promise and his birth is miraculous. God is a God who keeps his word, we learn from Isaac through this birth. Um, and there are seven parallels, roughly, between Isaac and Jesus, both with his birth and, in a moment, with his sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Both Isaac and Jesus were promised. Um, they were the promised seed of uh, God's plan, and they're both male. He's the son, so was Jesus, obviously. There's a lengthy time between the promise and the arrival, or the realisation of the promise. For both of them, when the promise is given, the mother asks a question. Sarah asks, how shall I have a child seeing that I am so old? Mary asks a question, how shall I have a child seeing that I've never slept with a man? And they both receive the same answer. The reply given is, is anything too hard for the Lord? The names are given before he was born. He was called Isaac before he was, God told him to call him Isaac. So too Jesus. They both arrived at God's appointed time. Both had a birth that was miraculous. And both, in terms of their name, when they were born, meant a delight to their father. Isaac begins well. Then you move on to his sacrifice. Well, we learn that God has a plan. I told you about that. Um, the sacrifice is Genesis 22, which we would have looked at a couple of weeks, maybe a month or more ago now, which is absolutely fascinating chapter. It's a... Isaac's involved in it, and he's the sacrifice, or the potential sacrifice, but it's really about Abraham and God working something out. But if you look at the chapter carefully, there are amazing parallels between Isaac and Jesus again. There is a divine plan. God is the one who said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son that you love, and offer him as a burnt offering at the place that I will show you. So too with Jesus, the father had a plan. The father is the one who set the, Abraham set the son aside for this sacrifice. So too with Jesus. It's Abraham and um, Isaac who were traveling with two servants and they get to a place where they say to the two servants, you wait here and we'll go on alone. That's what Jesus says and does in the Garden of Gethsemane. The wood is placed on Isaac, Jesus carries the cross. 
Isaac submits willingly and does the father's will, just like Jesus. It's the father who carries the knife and the fire in Genesis 22. It's the father who will punish the son on Calvary. There's a wonderful question that Isaac asks Abraham as they're journeying up to mountain, to Mount Moriah, and says, I can see the fire and I can see this, the wood, and where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham's answer is beautiful, it's prophetic. God will provide himself a sacrifice. God will provide himself, and he does, in the person of Jesus. Um, they came to the place where Isaac is bound, Jesus was bound. He was placed on the wood, Jesus was placed on the cross. The one exception to the parallel in the accounts is that an angel stops Abraham from plunging the knife into the son. There is no angel that will stop the father punishing pouring out the wrath, God's wrath, on God the Son, on Calvary. And then interestingly, Abraham turns and he sees a ram. And the ram is caught in a bush with thorns caught around its head, just like Jesus again, that he's the Lamb of God. And it's interesting that you had to turn in order to find the ram, so too we must turn, we must repent to see Jesus. So Isaac is a type of the Lord Jesus in his birth and in his sacrifice. Here is a pretty significant sort of character who starts off amazingly well on this spiritual journey. And I don't have too much time to expand this, but also in this chapter, Genesis chapter 22, it is the only reference in the whole Old Testament to the truth that God requires a human sacrifice. Take your son. It's the only time God says it. Every other time, God will say no to human sacrifice, that it's forbidden. And in fact, God stops this one in Genesis 22 of Isaac being sacrificed, because I, not because God is opposed to it, but because Isaac is not good enough. God allows animals to be a substitute sacrifice until the human arrives who is worthy, Jesus, to be the only human substitute, the only one who can stand in our place and take the punishment for our sin. So it's an amazing chapter. And again, it's associated with Isaac. With Isaac, God, Genesis 24 is a wonderful chapter. We looked at that. It's about God, Abraham sending his servant off to, you know, his relative's place up in Haran. And uh, the whole way that God led the servant and the whole exchange and everything. It's a wonderful chapter, chapter 24. But it's all about God providing a wife for Isaac. Again, you see, he doesn't appear till the end of the chapter. It's about him. But he's not on stage. He's behind the scenes. He's indirectly anyway he gets married he's at the age of 40 he gets married and in the chapter 25 now we find that there is a delay i'm pretty sure when rebecca came and got married to isaac that he would have told her and so would have abraham about the divine promises the covenant that the the planned line god's plan was working out through abraham then isaac and then his son so she would have fully expected to get pregnant and for that son, that child, to be the heir of promise. 20 years passed. Nothing happens. For 20 years. They must have wondered, what is God doing? What is going on? And in that same period of time, Ishmael, Isaac's brother by another mother, has 12 sons. He has 12 sons. God has chosen me and I'm the... Through me, I'm going to have the line and nothing's happening. But what does happen is that we do read in 25, the passage that Kerry read to us, that it drove Isaac to prayer. And he prays effectively and God hears him and answers him. 
That's a lesson there for us. At least, how do you read this? Is it he had been praying through all that time? Doesn't say that. Just says he prayed. Probably he was. Or was he sort of like, he just took it for granted that God, I'm the chosen one and God's going to give me a son and God will do it in his own time and he just took it for granted, didn't do anything. And after 20 years, it finally drove him to prayer. That he started running out of patience or wondering and curious about what really is going on. Well, the truth of the matter is he did pray, whether it's fervently for 20 years or just passionately towards the end out of desperation. And we can learn from that that God desires us to pray for the things that we need, even though he's already promised that he'll provide for us. God promised Isaac that he would have a son. And yet Isaac had to pray. There's a lesson there for us that the way God works in the world is he works when we pray. He will still achieve his plan. And if we're not praying, then John Wesley, I think, gets it right. He says, then God will raise up somebody else somewhere else and they'll be praying. God's work is achieved as we, his people, pray. The promises of God don't negate our praying, but in fact, they motivate our praying. God, you promised this and I'm asking for it. Let's be a people who pray and pray effectively. God's answer to them came with a problem. Sarah, uh, Rebecca does become pregnant and she's having twins. And the babies in her womb are not just, what was the, uh, the word in the NIV? Uh, jostled? The Hebrew is far more dramatic. They were crashing into each other. Crashing. That's a dr dramatic thing. There's something going on in her that really disturbed her. Which, as an aside, not for the message this morning, but it's interesting, isn't it? The babies in the womb have their own personalities, have their own choices, and make their own preferences. Babies in the womb. It says something about anti-abortion, doesn't it? I can remember when Kate was in the womb of uh, Rhonda. That Kate, who was a very strong-willed young lady, that hasn't changed... But God is good, money's even stronger. <laughs> Payback. Um, Rhonda would lie on one side and Kate would get all upset. She would kick and push and, and Rhonda had to roll over onto the other side. Then she would settle down. Here is a baby telling the mother which way she preferred. Well, that's something like that and worse than that is going on in the womb of Rebecca where these two little boys are going at it. <clears throat> and so she, notice... She goes to inquire of the Lord. She does the right thing. Isaac can't explain what's going on. The nurse who came with her can't explain what's going on. They don't know. When God speaks to her, gives her a marvellous revelation that though it's a difficult pregnancy, in fact, it's a prophetic thing that there's going to be a divided destiny, that two babes are in your womb and one's going to be stronger than the other and the, young, the stronger one, the firstborn, is going to serve the second one, the weaker one, and out of these two sons are going to come two nations. And what's interesting is that God says to Rebecca, the child of the promise is going to be the younger one, the one who was born second. God tells her that before they're born. So she knows which one is the child of the promise. Do you think she told Isaac? I reckon she did. How could you not? They loved each other, they cared for each other, particularly in the earlier stages 
That's the only clues the text gives us. So I think Isaac knew as well. And verse 27 and 28 of that chapter tells us, very sadly, I think, that as when the boys grew up, Esau was a hunter and Isaac loved Esau. And Jacob was a man who dwelt in tents. He's more of a quiet domestic type and Rebecca loved him. Isn't that terrible parenting? Having favourites. Not enough people groaned, I don't think, on that. (laughs) It's an insight into his character, though. Isaac knows Jacob is the child of promise, but he loves Esau. Interesting. Anyway, story moves on. In Genesis 26 is where we do come to the point with a focus, he becomes centre stage and there are about five or six paragraphs in this chapter. There's a lot in it and I've got to race pretty quickly. Before I do move on, um, <clears throat> Isaac and Rebecca must have been wondering, what is God doing over that period of time, those 20 years? And God was still at work. God was just waiting. He's got his own time when he does things. So my question to you this morning is, what's going on for you? What are you going through? Is it a tough time? Is it a tough season? Or is it a great season? If it's a tough time, maybe your career has come to a dead end. Maybe God seems distant or far away. Or maybe there are health issues for you. And maybe other things are going on and going wrong for you. Well, I just wanted to encourage you. God hasn't abandoned you. He's still with you. He's still committed to working his purposes out. He will be teaching you to rely on him and to wait for him to cast all your cares upon him because he does care about you and God is very concerned and perhaps it's not too much to say God is more concerned with what's going on inside of you than he is with what's going on around you how you are responding and growing so I just wanted to take that time to remind that you and me of those truths stay focused on him stay loyal to him don't do what is going to happen in the life of Isaac as we'll get to. Genesis 26, there is a famine. It's a test. It's part of the journey, isn't it? Faith is always going to be tested. Depends what season you're in and so on. And God uses these difficult times. Here is the land flowing with milk and honey and there is a famine. I only read of another famine before. It must have been about 100 years, 80 to 100 years before in the time of Abraham. And Isaac does what his father did. He decides that he's going to go to Egypt. And so he heads off towards the coast. He comes to this place called Gerar, which is on the coast. And it's in the territory of the Philistines. The Philistines are a people group who are leaving the island of Crete and are moving across to the mainland. And they're still in the process of doing that over the next couple of hundred years. So it's early days of them coming. But nonetheless, they have a community. They have a king who's called Abimelech. Abimelech is not a personal name. It is the title for the king, the ruler. Just like Pharaoh, it's not a personal name, but it's the title for the ruler. Um, And so Isaac heads off that way. And marvellously, and necessarily, when he gets to Gerar, God appears to him, verses 2 and 3 of Genesis 26, and gives him some wonderful promises, but very clear instructions. Don't go down to Egypt don't leave the promised land, stay here. If you obey me, then I will be with you, I will lead you, you need to trust me. I will bless you, I'll provide descendants for you, and I'll bless nations through you, 
And God concludes by saying, because of your father Abraham and because of his obedience. Here's another subtle clue. I'm going to bless you because of him. There's something not right in life, in Isaac's life, that he's sort of with God, close to God, but not exactly firing with God, it would appear. But let's keep going. Isaac listens, and he would have been thrilled, I'm sure, to have an experience of encountering God in that way and hearing those promises directly. And it's the very first time that Scripture tells us that God appeared to Isaac. Um, And Isaac obeys, and he stays put in Gerar, and God does begin to bless him. Uh, But then uh, he follows the sin of his father, Abraham. His wife, Rebecca is 60 years of age or thereabouts doesn't have children yet so this is predated and the, he is fearful for himself just having encountered god i am with you i will bless you i'll you know do everything to protect you all that sort of stuff he fears for his life so he tells a lie that she's not my wife she's my sister like abraham did he's probably thinking work well for dad he got out of it alive i'll use the same strategy Um, And of course, children follow the sins of the parents. We need to be careful about our children, around our children. They will imitate us in our attitudes and in our speech. It's quite normal. Children copy their parents. Isaac, in one sense, is copying his dad, Abraham even though he's got a very different temperament to Abraham. Nonetheless, he is tempted by the same issues. So he lies about Rebecca and so on. There's no um, mention, of course, of the kids just yet. But like most times in our life, the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. And Abimelech is in a house and he's up high. He's looking out over the town, the community, the tents down below. And he sees, and the Bible uses a euphemism, and a play on Isaac's name, to describe that Isaac was doing something with Rebekah, that it was pretty clear that you don't do that with your sister. And different Bibles and different commentators struggle to express what it is. It's a play on words, comes from exactly the same word as the word Isaac, meaning laughing. They were laughing. The AV very delicately, because it's sporting. They're playing badminton or something together. <clears throat> Holding hands. Sorry? Holding hands, uh, kissing maybe, hugging, touching. Uh, One commentator says they're having sex. I think that's gone too far. I like, I don't know which version it was, but it says frolicking. He was having fun with her and she with him in a pretty intimate sort of a way. And you didn't do that with your sister. I'll leave it to your imagination what it is. I don't have a clue. Hmm. But Abimelech sees it and he calls Isaac in. He says, clearly, she's not your sister. You don't behave like that. Abraham, uh, Isaac confesses. He owns up to it, says why he did it, because he was afraid and so on. And then Abimelech, having rebuked him, a non-Christian, an unbeliever, rebuking a believer, does happen. And in fact, it's an indication in these early days that the Philistines did have a moral conscience, that they had a higher standard or a standard very similar to God's standards. Uh, of protecting marriages. 
And if you read Genesis 20, six chapters before, Abraham did exactly the same thing to Abimelech, the king, in the place called Gerar, same place. Same place, same circumstance. And it's the non-Christian, it's the unbelieving king who actually provides protection now for Rebekah. Two things. One, we are being watched. I'll come back to that later. Somebody is watching us, how we respond and how we react and everything else. But secondly, God was at work. Isaac stuffed it up. He wasn't going to, he was concerned about himself, not about his wife and not about the promise. But God overruled. God stepped in. God used the non-Christian king to work his purposes out to provide protection for Rebecca and ultimately for Isaac. And so as God did say to him, so God blessed him. Oh, sin rebuke, did that one. God blessed him. And materially, and for the very first time, Abraham and he had been looking after and raising herds and flocks and so on. For the very first time, Genesis 26, Isaac grabs some lamb somewhere, whether he's renting it or whatever, he plants some crops and the crops are so successful, they yield 100-fold produce. God was blessing him. And he prospered so much in wealth and in servants and everything else that it became a threat. So Abimelech has to come to him and ask him to leave. And he moves. And where does he go? He goes out of the capital and he goes further up the valley. Father Abraham had been in this area before and Abraham had dug wells. Well, the passage tells us that the Philistines had closed in those wells probably after the death of Abraham. It's not so much retaliation against Isaac. I think it was more a prevention that after Abraham died, they filled them in because they didn't want other people coming and using that water. They didn't want any other people moving in. They were still settling in and moving, setting, setting themselves up. Well, Isaac returns to those wells and he opens them up again. He re-digs them and he calls them exactly the same name that Father Abraham had done. He does that deliberately and what he is meaning to do is to say, this is mine. It's mine by inheritance. It's mine by construction. I'm reclaiming it. Well, the Philistines come, the men of Gerar come and they say, you can't have that well. It's ours. So there is, uh, there's conflict going on. And you read the passage, it's got a couple of different names. One is called Essek, which means quarrelling or contention, fighting, disagreeing. They move on, they dig another well and they men follow him and he can't have that. And he calls that well Sitna, which means hatred or hostility. And then he moves on again. He doesn't, he's not like Abraham. He doesn't stand and fight. He is more of a man of peace. He's non-confrontive. He, he just moves on. Very wealthy man, very able, very capable. He probably could have fought them and beaten them, maybe, but he just chooses to move on. And in the process of these conflict and circumstances, what's happening is God is leading him, leading him away from the land of the Philistines and back to the land of promise, that God was guiding him through these circumstances of history. God was certainly with him. In a time of famine, he had a crop which was a hundredfold. He was kept finding wells and water. God was providing for him. God led him. God met with him because when, God, when he was moving, he ends up going to the south to a place called Beersheba. Very important place to Abraham and to Isaac. It's a place of closeness with God. And there for the second time, God meets with him, promises him, don't fear, I am with you. Three times in Genesis 26, Isaac is informed, God is with you. 
three times. So 26 begins with a famine and Isaac lying. It ends with Isaac being restored. He recovers from it. His confidence is increased. He's in the, the hands and close to God and he's being blessed by God. That's in Genesis 26. The chapter ends very sadly that his son, his favourite son, Esau, marries a couple of Hittite women. That's probably an indication. I don't want to read too much into it, but it's probably an indication that Isaac didn't really direct his son too much. He let him do what he wanted to do. And if that's the case, then it's very poor parenting. He was a little bit careless, but still loved and preferred Esau, even though it was a great grief to him, these women that he had married. God met with him, and I wanted to draw our attention to that truth, that God, uh, that we are being watched. When we come to turn the page to Genesis 27, you find that Isaac transitions from this restored, confident character to somebody who is now aged, and he thinks he's going to die. He's about 140 years of age, and he thinks, you know, his time for death has come, and he wants to, listen to this, he wants to bless his son Esau and give the blessing and the promises of God to his son Esau, even though he knew God had said the younger son is the one that is chosen. Isaac, Genesis 27, 140 years of age, is a little bit defiant, a little bit rebellious, a little bit resistant to doing God's will. He's going to do his will, have his way. Maybe the fact that Jacob had, you know, conned Esau out of it by that selling of the pottage and all of that, maybe that irritated Esau. Maybe he and his wife had fallen apart a little bit over the years. They certainly seemed to have some domestic division. You read Genesis 27. Now Isaac is plotting and planning to bless Esau, as I said, against God's will. We, uh, I'll come back to that, I'll move on. He is spiritually dulled. That's what Genesis 27 is about. And the tent walls are thin. He calls Isaac, Esau in and he says, go out into the field, kill a game, bring it back, let me eat it because I'm going to die. And he's totally wrong. The tent walls are very thin, as one commentator says, when you have domestic strife in your family. And Isaac's heart, the way to his heart is through his stomach. And Rebecca knows that, so she knows the recipe as well. And so she gets Jacob, and you know the story, Genesis 27. They're all involved in it. It's not just about Isaac, but it's these other characters, and they're all, none of them come off well. They're all doing exactly the wrong thing. In fact, Kent Hughes, in his commentary, he says this, there is something really absurd going on here. The mother and son, Rebecca and Jacob, believe that God would not be able to accomplish his purposes without their sinful help. Let's get that. They thought, we've got to help God out here. We have to do the wrong thing. They're going to lie and deceive and carry on and trick Isaac instead of trusting God and praying and letting God work it out as God had been doing all the way up to this point. They justified their own sinful, deceitful ways. They thought it was acting appropriately when in fact it was completely inappropriate. Jacob lies about his identity. He lies about the time. He even calls God in and says, God's an accomplice in all of this. Ask point blank, are you my son Esau? Yes, I am. 
And Isaac, because of his eyesight is dulled, it's dim, it's, he must be nearly blind, but his sense of hearing and his sense of touch and his sense of smell is heightened. And he listens carefully to the tone, it's the wrong tone, it's the voice of Jacob, not the voice of Esau. He touches him and you know the goat skin and the hair, Esau must have been one, must have been like a gorilla, a really hairy dude. <clears throat> and then uh, he smells him and it, eventually uh, Isaac is deceived and he passes the blessing on to Jacob. Jacob departs, Esau turns up and Isaac goes, who are you? I'm your son, I'm your son Esau. It's almost the same words that he used. And then, well, who was that? And then he says, haven't you got a blessing for me? And the scripture says in what, verse 33, 27, 33, this is the la almost the last thing Isaac does. Isaac trembled violently because he realized God had overruled. He wasn't going to follow what God had clearly said. He tried to do it, but God... Even through this deceitful, deceptive ways, the wrong way, God overruled his wrong. And his final act, chapter 28, verse 1, is to say to Jacob, don't marry a woman from around here, go back to Laban and find a wife from up there. When he says that, he passes, he walks off stage. We read no more about dear old Isaac. Um, the story goes on, but it'll go on without him. He walks off the stage. Until chapter 35, where we read about 40 years later that he dies. He thinks he's going to die. He lasted another 40 years. He drifted spiritually. Some commentator, some preacher said, he didn't wear out, he rusted out. He was just parked in a paddock somewhere and doesn't do anything. That's why I'm saying to you, one of the things to learn from Isaac's life is don't drift spiritually. Don't just coast. There are things for you to be intentionally doing. He walks off stage. Isaac was a loyal, submissive son who seems to have lost his way particularly after his dad died. And when the twins were born, that sort of divided the family and divided his attention. He favoured Esau. But yet God was with him, God was blessing him. But as he aged and his eyesight dims, it's not just physical eyesight, it's spiritual eyesight. Spiritual awareness also seems to have dulled. Yet God was still at work through him, through this ordinary, normal person. God is a God who keeps his word. God is going to work his purposes out regardless of the unbelief or the unfaithfulness of his people, whether it's Isaac's opposition, Rebecca and Jacob's deception, or Esau's indifference, God will fulfill his word. He'll achieve his purposes. God has a plan. God hears our prayers. God uses us as a witness. We are being watched. And God will overrule in life circumstances, even our decisions to achieve his plan. He needs to be our focus. Lord, what do you want me to do? And let's do that together. Let's pray. Father, through this man that you chose, miraculously born, sacrificially significant, 
a man that you met with and promised. You worked your purposes out as you still do. But also through Isaac's life, Lord, we learn that we need not only to be a people who pray and rely on you, but we need to be a people who stand true to you in the midst of temptation. People are watching. So we need to honour you as Lord of our life, not just in word, but in our life's choices, our attitudes and actions. Lord, deliver us from spiritual dullness, from drifting. Alert us, meet with us. We think of your promises. Help us to embrace them and to be committed to them right to the very end. Lord, hear us and answer us. For Jesus' sake, amen.